Hi, my name is Kara Frederick. I'm the Research Associate for the Technology and National Security Program here at the Center for a New American Security. I'm joined today by Paul Shari, the Senior Fellow and Director of the Technology and National Security Program here at CNAS. Paul is also the author of Army of None, Autonomous Weapons and the Future of Warfare, published by W.W. Norton, out in stores today. This book explores the technology behind autonomous weapons and the legal, moral, ethical, and strategic dimensions of this evolving technology. Thanks for joining us today, Paul. Thanks, Kara. Thanks for um, hosting today, and um, uh, welcome to the tech program. <laughs> Thanks a lot. So what I want to do is I want to take it back to your Ranger and maybe your Pentagon days and ask you for the bluff, the bottom line up front. So what is your book? If you could choose that, like, what is your book about? Ah, yes, the old, the old bluff. Um, yeah, you know, the technology is moving forward to enable machines to make life and death decisions on their own in war. That's the central idea around the book. And to some extent, this technology already exists in some crude ways today. And so the, the fundamental question the book grapples with is, should we cross that line? And if we did, what would it mean to hand over these life and death decisions to machines? So that gives us some insight into, I guess, what you hope to accomplish. But why now? Why today? Yeah, I've been working on this issue for a number of years uh, here at CNAS with our Ethical Autonomy Project. I've been part of discussions at the United Nations on this topic. And of course, I've worked this issue for a number of years in the Pentagon. Uh, so I've been thinking about this for a long time. It kind of got to the point where I just had enough ideas in my head that I realized and I wanted to get out there that realized it would probably fill up a book, um, and that turned out to not be a problem. We actually had to cut a lot of material. Um, I think that the timing is working out well in the sense of, I think this issue is, is heating up, uh, both in international discussions and in the public consciousness, as the technology gets more real, and in particular as it intersects with a lot of advances in artificial intelligence that are also bringing some of these issues um, to the fore. So let's take it back to the basics then. What are autonomous weapons? How do they work? Um, you know, conceptually, it's a really simple idea. It's a weapon that would make its own decisions about who to kill. Um, just like conceptually, a self-driving car is a really simple concept. It's a car that drives on its own. In practice, when you start to look at the technology, you see a spectrum of autonomy. I would compare it to thinking about cars. You, you get into a you know, top-of-the-line car today, it's got a lot of automated features. Um, self-parking, intelligent cruise control, automatic lane keeping, automatic braking. And similarly, when you start to look at military technology and more advanced missiles and robots and other systems, they're adding more autonomy incrementally. And so in some ways, we're sort of creeping towards crossing this threshold, um, you know, without necessarily making a clear decision to cross it. Um, and uh, so, so I think it's, it's an interesting challenge when you think about sort of the technology in practice. How does it look um, in terms of what are the main features that would enable a weapon that could go uh, hunt for targets and, and attack them all on its own? So that does kind of sound like there is something to be afraid of. Is there anything you'd like to expand on in that regard? Well, I mean, there's, there's a diverse array of views on this. Um, there are some folks who, you know, the sky is falling and uh, the killer robots are coming from uh, for us all. That's certainly one point of view. Um, there are others who sort of say, well, you know, maybe autonomous weapons would be better uh, for war just the same way that 
self-driving cars, you know, in theory, once they are good enough, um, could save lives on the road. You know, wouldn't it be great if we could have weapons that could avoid civilian casualties? Um, I don't think the sky is falling, but I am concerned about some of the risk that could come with these weapons and some harm. Um, I, I don't really agree with the position that, you know, they never could be used in a way that's lawful, uh, that some people say. There are clearly some narrow cases today. For example, um, an undersea robot that hunted submarines, um, where you could imagine autonomous weapons being used in a way that is compliant with the laws of war. Um, but I do think these raise some tricky ethical questions that are worth thinking about in terms of how they change uh, the relationship that humans have to making decisions in war and, and to killing in war. And then I think they raise some pretty um, serious operational risk concerns and stability concerns. I'm particularly worried about uh, engagements between autonomous systems interacting at machine speeds and the potential for surprises there and not, not in a good way. So I think the natural thought progression from that then is to talk about regulation, something that's very much in the news today uh, regarding all sorts of industries. For this one in particular, uh, I noticed that a lot of your book focuses on the debate around arms control and potential bans uh, with degrees of gradation, of course. Uh, in part of the book, you include a pretty cool table on why some bans succeed and others fail. You take it all the way back to banning poison arrows or barbed arrows in 1500 BC to the failed ban on the crossbow in 1097. You talk about landmines, land mines, chemical weapons, blinding lasers. So why do bans succeed or fail? And why is this discussion important? Uh, yeah, thanks. This is something that I think is actually really underexplored in this topic. Um, a lot of the debate around autonomous weapons I mean, some of it's about whether they're a good idea, but a lot of it is people acknowledging maybe it's not a great idea if countries were to build these and deploy them in mass. But I think a lot of people saying, look, these bans are useless and they never work. And that's not, that's not really correct. Um, when you look at the historical record, it's really mixed. And there's enough examples of successes and failures on weapons bans for people to kind of pick examples on whatever side they want. You're people who want to ban autonomous weapons and say, well, look, we banned you know, chemical weapons and biological weapons and landmines and cluster munitions and blinding lasers, so we can ban things, let's ban this. And then I hear other people say, um, well, the Pope tried to ban a crossbow, didn't work. We saw nations at the turn of the 20th century try to regulate air-delivered weapons um, and submarines, and those failed pretty, pretty dramatically. And so, you know, bans don't succeed. Um, and the track record is much more mixed. What I tried to do is really look at all of these cases, going back to ancient India, and try to understand you know, this question of why the ban succeed and fail, which as near as I could tell had not really been done comprehensively elsewhere. There have been a couple scholars that I want to give a shout out to, uh, Rebecca Krutoff and Sean Welsh, who've done some great work on this um, in some, some papers that at first kind of really spurred me to, to dig a little bit deeper. And when I looked at this, um, to me, there's a couple of key criteria that come into play. One is um, that there's a, a balancing between the military value of the weapon and its horribleness in some respect. Um, what's bad about weapons can vary depending on the weapon. Sometimes it's that it causes unnecessary suffering. Uh, there were concerns about the sawback bayonet in World War I, a type of bayonet that was designed to saw wood as a kind of a dual use, but when you pulled it out of a person who'd been stabbed with it, caused these grievous injuries. Um, and that led to, reportedly on the battlefield of World War I, Allied troops telling 
German soldiers uh, that if they found anyone with this thing, they'd be killed on the spot, which is a war crime. Um, but that this led German troops to just unilaterally saw down these things and file off these bayonets. So you have um, some concerns about suffering. Uh, there are concerns about you know, collateral damage and civilian casualties, concerns about stability, obviously driving a Cold War era arms control on things like uh, intermediate range nuclear weapons and the number of nuclear weapons and anti-ballistic missiles uh, and other, other features like that, putting weapons in space. So all these different motivations. But there's kind of a balancing act. That's a major factor. When you look at something like poison gas, well, you know, it has some military value. It's not useless, but it's, it's not really that effective against troops who have chemical protective gear. It slows them down, but it's not decisive. Um, I think that's a major factor in why bans on chemical weapons have been largely successful, but not, of course, entirely. We're still seeing Bashar al-Assad's using them in Syria today, um, despite widespread international condemnation. But you compare that to, say, nuclear weapons, um, which states have not been willing to give up because nuclear weapons have, are, you know, have such a decisive effect on the battlefield, um, were they to be used, I guess, sort of theoretical weapons. Um, but, but certainly that's the view of defense scholars. That's a major factor. Um, another thing that comes out historically is being able to draw clear lines between what's allowed and what's not. Um, and when those lines can be fuzzy, when you see crossover, um, then those bands become harder to, to make succeed. The number of actors that need to cooperate is another factor. Um, it's easier to ban weapons when only a couple of countries have access to them, much harder when they're widespread. Um, and then the, the time period and the weapons production process of where it comes into play also seems to matter. Um, things that happen early in the production process, things that ban ever building a weapon in the first place, seem to have more success than something that, for example, regulates its use on the battlefield. Um, bands that say, well, you can use this weapon in this context and not that context, those don't seem to fare as well historically. I think what you've talked about here and what you've teased out is different from when a lot of people talk about potential bans on autonomous weapons and just autonomous, we autonomous weapons in general. There's a, a focus on the humanitarian aspect of it. and. Let's face it, this is a very human problem, as you articulate in your book, especially using your, your anecdotal experiences in the field as a ranger sniper. So, yes, there's a hum humanitarian component of a potential ban, but you also just teased out some of the strategic arguments um, regarding these potential bans and just autonomous weapons in general. And that's what I think a lot of people don't necessarily talk about um, in a holistic manner. They don't include both at the same time, the strategic and humanitarian elements of this. So what does, what, how would autonomous weapons affect these strategic issues like crisis stability, escalation control, war termination? What are some of the strategic consequences of introducing them as well as humanitarian? Yeah, one of the strategic considerations is, I think at a high level, that a world where uh, militaries have, and humans have less control over what's happening in the battlefield is probably actually not in anyone's interest. It's not good from a humanitarian standpoint, and it's probably really not what nation states and militaries would prefer, all things being equal. Um, that, you know, Chinese scholars have talked about this idea of a battlefield singularity, getting to a point where um, the pace of action on the battlefield eclipses the pace of human decision making. It's hard to see how less human control over warfare is a good thing for anyone. And so there is, I think, a compelling strategic reason to think about um, why it might be in states' interests to not have these weapons. 
Um, and particularly in situations like crisis stability or escalation, you know, we've seen this in, in stock trading and interactions between algorithms that are unexpected that lead to things like flash crashes. Well, you don't really want the military equivalent of that. You don't want to flash war. Uh, it's hard to see how that would be in anyone's interest. But I, I think these, these strategic elements have really gotten short shrift in international discussions, in large part because the discussion internationally has really been driven by um, NGOs and a movement among um, them to, to have a ban on autonomous weapons. And the arguments tend to really revolve around civilian harm. And, you know, just to be, to be blunt, that is a secondary consideration for a lot of states. Um, you know, you have, you have some states that care about the rule of law and they, they, you know, they are legally obligated to avoid civilian harm and they, they, um, they also might care politically um, or for reasons of you know, humanity um, and, and for ethical and moral reasons. But they also need to care about military utility. They need to have weapons that are effective on the battlefield. And then you got a bunch of states that could care less, frankly, about civilian harm. Um, you look at what Assad is doing in Syria, he's, he was intentionally murdering civilians. And, and Russia and Iran are, are supporting him. So the countries just don't, they don't care. They might say the right things in discussions, but it's not a factor. Um, I think that one of the, the dynamics here is that you have some people involved in, in calling for a ban that were involved in successful efforts on landmines and cluster munitions where that argument worked because you had real humanitarian harm that was happening from those weapons. Whereas then it doesn't exist. So I don't think you see the same, the same pressure, at least not right now on states. Um, but there are good reasons. When you look historically at other attempts to ban weapons, the dynamic that's happened more recently with landmines and cluster munitions and now autonomous weapons, where it's been driven by NGOs, is actually very unusual. Earlier attempts to ban weapons were driven by great powers. It was great powers that talked about regulating submarines and banning air-delivered weapons and poison gas and that um, regulated the size and number of battleships in the interwar period. And so um, that's, that's, that element of great powers leaning into this is something that um, is at least missing in these discussions right now. So speaking of great powers, you also talk about the importance of consensus and it's important for states to agree on something. And in doing so, you give four options or models for restraint on these weapons for states to ideally agree on. Uh, the first is to ban fully autonomous weapons. Second, to ban anti-personnel autonomous weapons. The third, to establish the rules of the road for autonomous weapons. And the fourth, to create a general principle about the role of human judgment in war. Um, I think these are all pretty inclusive, but do you have a particular favorite? <laughs> um, I try really hard not to stake a position in the book. I mean, I mean, I see really the aim as the book is to lay out the ideas and let readers kind of make up their own minds. Um, and so I'm not, I'm not advocating uh, for something in the book. Um, I have said in, in international discussions, um, I said this at the UN last fall, and I'll say it here, that I, I really like the conversation that has started to happen internationally about the role of humans in war. Um, and people starting to ask, well, if we had all of the technology in the world, what role do we want humans to play and why? And I think that's the right question to be asking. I don't know the answer to that. Um, one of the things that I explore in the book is, do the laws of war itself place some minimum necessary bounds on human involvement? Do the laws of war you know, um, drive some way, place some, some level of involvement that people need to have in decisions about attacks? 
and internationally, you know, people have started to, to play with this notion with terms like meaningful human control or appropriate human judgment. Um, the terms themselves are pretty politicized. Um, you know, I talk in the book about a term, you know, blank human blank. Let's set aside what the terms are for the second, and let's talk about the underlying principle. And I think there's a lot of value in that. I'd like to see more discussion along those lines internationally. Um, and I also think that it might, there might be some value in setting aside for a minute the outcome, the vehicle. You know, from day one internationally, what people have been focused on is, well, are we going to have a treaty or not? And to me, that's really putting the cart before the horse. You know, we need to understand the issue first. And let's talk about what is the issue. Let's try to better understand it. What are the concerns arising from it? And what does right look like? What is the model that we want to have for how humans use this technology going forward? And then when we understand that, then we can talk about what the vehicle is for maybe writing that down or, or you know, codifying that in some way into an idea that, that countries can can latch on to, but I think that you know we need to understand the ideas before we try to figure out you know whether we're signing a document. Is there a way uh, for America in particular to help retain that human judgment piece and still utilize the advantages of these weapons? Um, I know that, as we said before, consensus is very important, and we want countries to sort of come together and realize how to strike this balance. Is there something that America should be doing differently as in itself? Well, um, when I worked at the Pentagon, I um, led the working group that wrote the official Defense Department policy on autonomy and weapons. Um, you know, no surprise, I think it's a pretty good policy. I'm happy with it. It's not, it's not perfect. Um, it's a product of a bureaucracy and, and getting everyone to consensus requires trades. But I think it's pretty good. I think it lays out a path forward for um, the Defense Department to grapple with this technology internally um, and make decisions about what it deploys. Um, I, I like that, and I think that that's a good framework going forward. It doesn't have clear answers about what, you know, what we should or should not build in the future. What it really does is create a process to bring people together um, to try to evaluate new technologies, to ask things like, well, you know, did we do test and evaluation and how it's gonna perform in realistic environments? Um, if, if not, why not? Maybe we should do that and try to better understand how, what this thing's going to do when we put it out there in the real world. I think those are important things so that, um, you know, in the U.S. military, if we give a weapon to a warfighter, that we can tell that person in a pretty clear and reliable way what that weapon's going to do when he or she pushes the button to say go. I think that seems like something that, that, we, that we owe our warfighters, um, particularly because at the end of the day, you know, they're responsible and they know that. Um, and they want to have control over these weapons. I think the U.S. could do more internationally to lead on this topic, and in particular to, um, to try to lead with some examples of things that we're doing. I was really pleased to see um, the United States leading into this topic in this year's meetings uh, at the U.N. in April, talking about the CRAM system, the counter-rocket artillery and mortar system. I think it's a great example of this sort of centaur model of combining human and machine decision-making, the value of human judgment, and the value of automation in increasing safety. Um, the, the CRM is kind of a dual safe feature where there are uh, ways that the automation might halt or stop an engagement um, to prevent fratricide. That's great. And then there's also a human still in the loop. So I think it's a pretty good model. I talk a lot about it actually in the book is 
as a model, sort of an idealized model going forward. It won't work in every instance, um, but I think it's pretty ideal. But I do think there are things the U.S. could do more in those discussions to try to talk people through, well, this is how we're thinking about it, um, as others are beginning to come up with their own national policies. So I'll close then with one macabre question and then another feel-good question. So starting with the bad first, what keeps you up at night regarding autonomous weapons? Um, you know, I think the thing that, that worries me the most is the stability scenarios, the crisis stability scenarios that I walk through in the book. I think they're really underexplored, um, but it's really possible to Im imagine situations where you have robotic systems interacting in a crisis and people have delegated some, some decision-making authority to them. And humans don't want to start a war, um, but they're engaging in brinksmanship or they're trying to get the other side to back down. And these automated systems take some interaction that take us down a path that is hard to, to walk back from. Um, you know, I think in, in the most extreme case, this might be interpreted as the autonomous weapon starting a war. And I don't know how, how you know, feasible it is to imagine just some accidental war happening. Um, I think it's more likely that what you might see is instances that ratchet up tensions, that escalate a crisis, and that stuff is, is really important. Um, and that those things could make it much harder for humans to walk back from things. You know, just because, you know, let's imagine that there was an attack, an autonomous weapon, you know, attacked from another country, attacked a US ship and killed a bunch of sailors. That doesn't automatically lead to war, but just because an autonomous weapon did that does not mean it would be that easy for the US to not respond if people were killed and, and the public was incensed and political leaders said, well, we need to respond. There's also some interesting academic literature to suggest that there are examples historically where military or political leaders in countries, they wanna go to war, but they don't wanna be the one to land their first blow. And so because, because of, you know, they don't want it to affect how other countries perceive them and alliances, and they don't want to be seen as the bad guy. Um, you could imagine scenarios where an accident with an autonomous weapon gives someone um, an excuse to take action, which would not be good either. So that's, I mean, that's the stuff that I, I do worry about and I think um, merits a lot more exploration to try to understand how can countries come together to try to mitigate those risks. Well, that wasn't as grim as I thought it would be, but we'll still <laughs> end on a high note anyway. Um, so what are you most proud of in the book? Oh, you know, the thing that I found most interesting researching and writing it was the stuff on cyberspace. Um, when I was, you know, started the book, I said, well, I have to have a chapter on cyberspace and autonomous weapons uh, because it'd be crazy to write a book that doesn't not do that. That would be just a glaring hole. But I, I knew nothing about um, what that might mean, how those two issues come together. And I found it really fascinating learning about things like the DARPA Cyber Grand Challenge, a lot of the autonomy that's already used in cyber systems, both offensively and defensively, and where some leading researchers see this going. Things like introspective software that could inspect its own code for vulnerabilities and then patch them. Um, that stuff's fascinating. Autonomy is in some ways baked into malware. Uh, that's what a worm does is it spreads on its own across a network and replicates itself. Uh, when you look at things like Stuxnet, that weapon had a lot of autonomy in it. Um, and so I think it's a really fascinating area that's, um, that's in particular also really near term. Um, I think we're most likely to see actually autonomy there. And it's a place that's, a lot of it's really a black box. Um, but I think, I think worthy of, of more consideration. 
Certainly. Well, thank you very much for taking the time, Paul. I think this is an extremely compelling look from a former practitioner and policymaker at an increasingly important question today and in the long term. So really appreciate you coming in today. Thank you, Karen.